And on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, welcome home to your Boo Crew episode 343. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Imagine owning one of the pulse rifles used in Aliens, or perhaps one of the Ghostbusters' iconic traps. Join this fascinating conversation with two extremely talented storytellers who both continue to make their own mark on Hollywood history while acquiring and curating it themselves as collectors. Meet Ryan Condal, screenwriter, showrunner, and creator of HBO's new House of the Dragon, and multi-Emmy winning Dave Mandel, writer for Saturday Night Live, The Simpsons, Seinfeld, and creator of the cult classic Eurotrip. Well, Scotty doesn't know that these guys also host an extraordinary podcast called The Stuff Dreams Are Made Of, all about prop collecting. Dive into this adventure of this extraordinary hobby and the journey of preserving items from not only your favorite horror movies, but all genres. It's a world of private collectors, auction houses, the thrill of the hunt, and so much more. Episode 343 with Dave Mandel and Ryan Condal is now slaying. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio are two pop culture defining creatives. First off, a passionate screenwriter whose feature film script Galahad, based on the King Arthur legend, was picked up after a bidding war. This opened up what has become an outstanding career hired by Warner Brothers to create the adaption of DC's hit comic miniseries Ocean, wrote Brett Ratner's award-nominated Hercules in 2014, the seven-time award-nominated Rampage. He then created USA Network's Colony alongside Lost Scribe Carlton Cuse and ran the show, which lasted for three seasons and garnered incredible acclaim. And most recently, he was picked by George R.R. Martin himself to helm the much-anticipated House of the Dragon that premieres at the end of August, the time of release, the prequel to what is known as one of the best TV series of all time, Game of Thrones. His writing is intelligent, exciting, with a real fan's perspective and a remarkable reverence for the fantastical. This is Ryan Condal. Also here with us, his satirical and recklessly fearless edge, dare I say, has played a massive part in TV and film projects that have changed everything. I mean, this guy's written many of the best Seinfeld episodes ever made, wrote and directed for the 22-time award-winning Curb Your Enthusiasm, the 86-time Emmy-winning Saturday Night Live, The Simpsons, Veep, and more, picking up a pair of Emmys for himself along the way. He was also the brilliant madman behind the most hilarious movie of all time, 2004's Eurotrip. It is Dave Mandel. So together, these two writers have decided to share their common love of collecting and curating production and screen used items, props, and ephemera from TV and film history on a fantastic podcast called The Stuff Dreams Are Made Of. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts. Currently just wrapped up its third season. Please welcome once again Ryan Condal and Dave Mandel. I I just have to go back though. Sure. Yeah, correct. Correct away. Did Hercules won an award? (laughs) Nominated. Yeah, Yeah, nominated for a pair of awards. Awards. I was a little shocked there too. But by the way, (laughs) allow me to say 
We, I feel like we should just hang up and allow this entire episode to just be That's those right. introductions because it's never getting better than that. Are, no. no one has ever introduced me. My own mother doesn't introduce me that Yeah. Like that no. was... Bless you, sir. Well, that's a uh, yeah. shame. That's a shame. You guys are both incredible. And uh, uh, so listeners of the Boo Crew podcast. I may always or may like n- to open for you, too, by the way, Dave. I, uh, my, I love my my credits open for yours. So it's, it's always good. <laughs> <laughs> that I feel like I've got about another two months. By mid-September, that'll which as i'm guessing yeah. <laughs> so yeah i was saying uh, listeners of the brew crew know that myself and lauren are, are hopeless uh, obsessive collectors basically and i tell you that your show stuff dreams are made of definitely scratches that itch and i've listened to each and every episode multiple times and you guys are like the ultimate enablers. It's like I, I was telling Lauren, it's like an alcoholic listening to two drunk guys talk about how awesome beer is. Talking about how wonderful beer is, but just not even regular beer, but really expensive beer <laughs> that you have to bid on to win. Like it's like it's not, uh, you know, it's like really pricey. Beer. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I- it would be like if somebody collected rare whiskey, Dave. There like- you go. And crazily drank it. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes it like it, it like what it does to me, it alters my brain chemistry as a as an addicted prop collector. When you know, you just talk you hear other people talking about price points and things like that. And outside of listening to that, and in my non collector friends, they don't understand this at all. But when you hear two people talk about and kind of uh I don't know, establish the normalcy of so of Make know, it okay. Yeah, make it okay it's yeah it's incredibly empowering in a very dangerous way as i said as i said but let's so i want to just kind of go back to the beginning for anyone who's kind of unfamiliar with the hobby in general and i know i i know the answer to this because i've listened to each and every episode but talk a bit about the ground zero for this type of collecting is there one event is there one person is there something that kind of started this whole thing yeah, I mean, I, I guess to me, you go back, the biggie was the big MGM auction that uh, I think for anyone that knows about it, they know its connection, I think, to the, the Ruby Slippers, the original uh, the Ruby, Ruby, Ruby Slippers from, uh, from Wizard of Oz. This was this auction in the 1970s where basically MGM, which was being sold off, they decided to auction off like all the costumes, props, set pieces, all of this stuff. And up till then, I think prop collecting was a little bit underground. I think it was very costume focused. Um, It was very um, like that was where there was value. There was sort of this sense of that these very beautiful like gowns and sequin costumes, which were costing a lot of money to make, had value unto themselves as both not just a collectible, but also as fashion in a way. And I think those are some of the the origins. But when you have this giant auction, this multiple, I think it was like a five-day auction, you can still to this day, you can find people selling the catalogs. And it's just typed up, very few pictures, but you can see the breadth of what they were selling. And it, uh, it did two things. Number one, it made it public. in Like the first time, I think, 
everyday people were like, oh, some of this stuff was around. And then two, it legalized it in a way because there was so much stuff in the auction. I think people were able to kind of cover like anything that they'd stolen from the set over the years. All of a sudden you could just kind of go, oh, no, 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 it was in the it was in the auction, you know, and people were okay. But I do think it was the first time it sort of shined a light on it and people started to get into it. And that doesn't mean it became popular overnight, but that's the start of it. That's that's modern prop collecting, I think. And again, it was very heavy on the costumes, which still goes on to this day. When you see like an auction, especially like some of the older auction houses, like like that specialize in in like the old Hollywood, like Julian's, they are still very heavy on the costumes and costume drawings. And when you go to like a showing there, you will see some of the older collectors, guys, you know, that are like, you know, at this point now in their like 60s, kind of coming out of the woodwork because that's what they collect. And so that's kind of the start of it. And then, you know, it's a few, you know, hops and skips, the pulse rifle, lightsabers, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the interesting thing about the MGM auction was the fact that uh, time had to pass, really. You know, the film film industry in the 1970s was fairly nascent. You know, I mean, the you know the, the, the end of the silent era was 40 years before that. It wasn't really a an, an old art form at that point. I mean, that's that's how far we are removed now from like you know Blade Runner and and Conan and Raiders of the Lost Ark. So I think that time needed to pass because really it it mostly is a nostalgia thing it is a reclaiming those happy memories from a more innocent age and tying those to the fan fantasy and escapism of being in the movie theater and i think you know the guy who is kind of behind curating that auction this guy kent warner you can read his story in this wonderful book called uh, the ruby slippers of oz which you should be able to find on amazon uh written by this uh, this guy reese thomas who we actually had on an early episode of our podcast so you can go back and and find that episode it's fascinating but this guy Kent Warner was a was a, a Hollywood costumer who saw the way kind of old Hollywood was being treated, and these things were rotting in the rafters of of these uh, these old you know dying movie studios. You know, it was the seventies, so the television revolution had happened. A lot of the big studios had had collapsed or were collapsing. They didn't really know where film was headed. The seventies, uh, the, the the resurrection, the new golden age of film, new Hollywood hadn't, hadn't happened yet. And, um, and he was working in, in costuming in the, in the late sixties and saw what was going on and started, as he called it, liberating things from, you know, he would, he would get access into these places at studios that he could only get as a costumer going in to do research to look for something under other <laughs> pretenses. And then he would find like Humphrey Bogart's trench coat from Casablanca and the Ruby slippers. And he found multiple Ruby slippers and like handed, handed probably the worst pair to the MGM auction as the pair, the only pair. Cause now of course we know there are multiples of these things because it's a movie, but at the time everybody looked at those and said, Oh, th- I saw the, the film. There was one pair of Ruby slippers. Those are the Ruby slippers. And there were, t- you know, he had all these, uh, you know, secrets and lost knowledge that he, he and his other um, collector friends were, were figuring out, but they all worked in the film business. And, um, and it's a kind of tragic story too, because these were generally, these were, these were, you know, gay men who were kind of, if not living in the closet, they were sort of living this secret life in a place, you know, LA was fairly progressive and cosmopolitan at the time, but it was 50 years ago. So even, even in a, in a, 
in a, in a forward looking city like LA, you still had to kind of watch your back. So they had, they had this whole kind of secret life going on in kind of many, many dimensions. So it's a really, it's a fascinating, uh, uh, story and kind of a tragic story to read about, but that's, you know, that and the MGM auction, you know, I, we consider them the kind of the early group of collectors. We'd imagine, you know, now 50 years on, you know, Dave and I and our close collector friends are very similar, probably having similar discussions to, to what, you know, those guys were talking about back in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. Right. And it was around then, wasn't it around then where they were like, some of the studios are just like taking this stuff and we're using these dresses as like rags in the studio yeah. commissary and things like that. It, yeah. it just wasn't being things that were really protected in any, in any sort yeah. of way anyway. Yeah. And there were also, there were secondhand shops too, that, that were just selling it as clothing. Um, and there were there and, and that, I mean, Dave real clothes, right. I mean, that ran all the way through what the two thousands. Yeah. Where people were just sort of like the value was not who wore it. The value was simply, Oh, it's an Armani, you know, skirt or something. Who cares what movie it's from? But people were buying it for those reasons. The other thing, too, is, you know, when something went back into be it a prop house, a prop department or, you know, into a into a wardrobe department. Again, even if they couldn't, even if they weren't necessarily turning it into a rag, it didn't mean they weren't cutting the sleeves off of it and dyeing it green for another show. And those, the the number of pieces like that over the years that, you know, again, we are aware that we're hurt like that. It's an insane number that nowadays you'd be like, Oh my God, I can't believe you did that to something from again, fill in whatever important movie you want. But again, they just, it was a costume. They made the movie. It was done. Let's make the next one. So you know, going back to Kent, those things that he did liberate, thank God he did. And then thank God for that auction where at least at least they were smart enough to auction it off and not just throw it all in the garbage, which, by the right. way, I think they considered doing. So you know, that's that. And that's, they also didn't. They also did in some cases. Yes, they threw lots of things out as well, too. But yeah. Well, let's start with how you guys both got started collecting and how it eventually led to your first prop. Either either one of you, Dave, you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure you can relate to this. You know, at some point you you sort of realize at some point you are a collector or you aren't. And, you know, like we talk about this on our show, we have our friends. They're not collectors. They like things. You know, I have I have my friends that went comic book shopping with me and read comics. And then at some point they stopped and I just kept going. And so I was always comic books, a little bit of baseball cards, but comic books were the big constant. I was a toy guy. Again, I wasn't like, I wasn't keeping stuff mint in package, but I certainly had them all. Do you know what I mean? And I I wanted to keep them all. And some things got, of course, you know, get thrown out by your parents and things like that. But I was always collecting something. I was always interested in different things like that. Um, When I got out to L.A. um, and was able to my first time going to the San Diego Comic-Con, my comic book collecting kind of turned into an original comic art collection, which was the first, I guess, not my first collection, but my first significant collection where I was actually more actively spending money and looking for things as opposed to my comic books, which was I was reading my books and I was saving my books, but I wasn't really deep diving and picking up old books once in a blue moon. So my comic art collection started growing there. That's when I started going, hey, I'd like to have 
all the Star Wars toys I had as a kid, but I want them now, you know, mint in the package, unpunched and all of that nonsense. So, you know, first let's get the 12 backs. Now let's get the, you know, and that sort of starts. And then one day you kind of wake up and you go, I have all the Star Wars toys. I have them all now and they're all perfect and they're beautiful. And that gets you into these sidetracks of like, well, what about some prototypes and some unmade toys and things like that and foreign packaging? And there's only so much of that you can do. And at some point in there, um, I saw an ad for a Stormtrooper helmet um, in Toy Shop magazine and it checked out and it was a prop. And in a world where, again, for me and my collecting, where you know, yeah, I had a rocket firing Boba Fett, but so did everyone I know, even though they are rare. The Stormtrooper helmet, although nowadays this is not as true. Nowadays, everybody I know also has a Stormtrooper helmet. But back then, that seemed like, holy crap, like everybody's got a Boba Fett, but I'm going to have this actual thing. And so some of it starts there. And that was really my my first prop. And then also... I was very much hooked and toys went a little bit to the wayside. Comic art still kept going, but it was just like, again, you know, Ryan said, said a version of this, which is being able to possess a piece of this movie that was a piece of it, as opposed to the toys, which had represented the movie, but again, were these mass produced things, but this was a part of the movie. And having read through all the various making ofs and Starlog magazines where you might actually see a picture of, you know, like a guy holding his stormtrooper helmet on the set or whatever. It's like, that could be it, you know, and there was just something about that. And I was, I was hooked instantly. Um, that, that, that's the, the long and the short of it. Yeah. I mean, for, uh, for me, I always, um, I think I was also always a collector. I started with baseball cards, certainly as a kid and cataloging and com making complete sets garbage pail kids definitely collectible cards um and then i made my way into um into comic books uh in the kind of late 80s early 90s in an era that um, is very near and dear to david mandel as a uh, comic reader but i ultimately always loved movies and i think i was this kind of formless collector like i've always collected little things i used to collect those little kind of lead uh, you know, pewter lead sort of medieval knights and dragons and things. And you'd see them in little tchotchke shops as you travel around the East coast and your parents, uh, you know, Woody station wagon. And, uh, and I would always pick those things up. And then I started at some point, I, I was really into like ghost stories. So I would collect, um, you know, those, those little like pamphlet books that you always see, you probably, you guys probably know about these because this is a horror podcast, but when you go to a local place that has, you know, history and hauntings. When you go to like Nantucket Island, it's like the ghosts of Nantucket Island. And there's all these little ghost stories. It's published as like a local kind of curio, um, you know, by the historical society or whatever. And I always pick those up wherever I go. Cause I always, I'm always fascinated by the, you know, the true, you know, true ghost stories, things aren't, that aren't in theory, aren't, um, uh, uh, made up out of whole cloth. And, and I would always draw from those for things that I would, you know, I would use in, in my writing, but I have this like whole, like kind of stacked collection of all these from all places that I visited. Whenever I visit a new place, I go looking for their like local haunting story. So I always had that kind of gene about me, but all, overall, I just, I loved movies more than anything else. 
And I was always a, a big movie guy. I spent, you know, as many hours in, on the weekends in the movie theater as I could. I studied uh, uh, the, um, you know, coming attractions and would look at the little movie posters in the movie theater and, um, you know, just see what, see what was coming. And I just kind of lived in that sort of escapist world. And I think for me, it was, as Dave said, looking for that connection that you can have to the film. And there's, you know, the toys and also, you know, the movie posters certainly are a thing. I mean, that's where a lot of collectors get and they start in the movie posters and go looking for something more interesting. For me, it was, you know, how do you, because movies are essentially light and shadow uh, projected on a screen, they're intangible things. So how do you have this kind of tangible connection to it? You know, if you love books, you can always collect the first edition of this book that you love. And and I think, you know, that's another kind of wonderful thing that I've sort of towed into a bit. Um, but with movies, it's really hard. And I think we, you know, Dave and I, as two guys that don't fuck around, we like to go for the most rare, impossible to get, most expensive thing possible well, in any collection. So we, we aim for movie. Collector's ego of like, again, it is a part of it is like, how do I have this thing that nobody else can have? Sure. But yeah. 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 I collected replicas uh, for, for a stretch. I mean, probably 10 years of that just because I like the objects and I've always loved kind of design and I love what goes into those, those things. And I didn't want the licensed stuff. I really wanted the handmade stuff that pe people were out on the internet and they were, they were reverse engineering these things and figuring out the real parts that they were made of. And like, what's, what makes up an M41A pulse rifle? And these people had completely reverse engineered this thing and figured out what the internal components were and then what they needed externally to custom make. And I just loved it because I have no capacity for any of that stuff, but I love the artistry that went into it. So I started buying those things. And then at some point, um, Battlestar Galactica, the, the Ron Moore show had its, had its big auction, I think in the late 2000, 2008, 2009. And there was, um, this, you know, they sold essentially the whole film, much like the MGM auction or the whole series. And, and Ron Moore was there walking around and it was great. And they had the big, the vi the full size Vipers up and the full size Cylon ships. It was crazy. And I just went to it as a fan to check it out. I knew friends that were going that were also collectors. So I'd, I'd been walking in the circle. You know, I knew Brandon Allinger who runs uh, Prop Store LA. And he had come out here to set up, set up the, you know, Stephen Lane's operation in Los Angeles. And I was fascinated with all the stuff and the history and the stories and all the things that I really like, you know, going back to those ghost books and the history of a place were kind of coalescing all into one thing. And I went to this auction just planning to check it out. And then I ended up bidding and winning a, uh, one of the Viper helmets from the series. And it just, when I picked it up, it just melted my brain. And it was just that thing of realizing this was an artifact used in the filming and it's a piece of history and there'll never be another one like this. It's completely custom made. It's a thing that they did for the film. And that was it. I just, you know, basically within a week I'd sold through all of my props. And then I went to, you know, my, my, uh, my, essentially my heroin dealer in, uh, in Brandon and said, well, what else can you get? And he's like, well, what else would you want? Oh, and I just yeah. said, yeah, I was like the kid in Christmas story, you know, with the red rider, you know, BB guy I was like, I want an M41A pulse rifle over under, you know, a 10 millimeter over a, you know, a grenade launcher under a counter, you know, the thing in the stock that tells time. And, uh, and he was like, ah, I think I know where one of those is. And then like sort of unbelievably, cause this never happens in collecting the thing, the thing that you first pop to mind, somebody will say, oh, that doesn't exist. Or, you know, there are three of them and you'll never get one because they're locked up in collections. But there was actually one available that this guy had kind of consigned to them. And it was one of the heroes from, from aliens. And I, I just always, that was my favorite sort of movie prop. Um, and I, within, you know, six weeks, I 
I didn't own another replica and I was like fully all in, in this crazy original collecting. And that just sent me on this, like now kind of, you know, 13, 14 year odyssey that I've been on as a, a movie prop collector. I know this is a difficult question and I have a hard time answering it a lot of the time, but is there one thing in your collection that is your absolute favorite? I mean, that pulse rifle is definitely up there because of the history of it. And I think it was kind of my favorite object. But if I really had to, if I really had to answer, I think it's, I go back and forth. I think it has to be my, uh, my Indiana Jones fedora that I have from last crusade. Oh, wow. And Dave, what about you? I've got one of those two and I like it a lot. I do. I do. Um, but, uh, I guess I would probably, if, if I actually had one from Raiders itself, I probably would choose it. The fact that the one I have isn't from Raiders lets me, I have an actual full original uh, Chewbacca mask from the original Star Wars uh, that was ever so slightly modified and then used in the holiday special as Mala, uh, Chewbacca's wife. And the double of the original Star Wars and the holiday special that I have proof that the holiday special existed. But also, you know, Chewbacca... So to me, such a, I mean, you know, when I was a kid, my favorite character, you know, him or at least him and Han Solo and just again, why that movie worked, that that was a character yet who never speaks a word of it. You know, everything about Chewbacca is part of why Star Wars is so great. So I guess I pick that in a world where it's really hard to uh, pick anything. Yeah. yeah. Trevor, what about you? I, I do this because we live in the hills and there's been lots of fires and maybe like three years ago there was a fire (laughs) Oh yeah, like what do you grab made us evacuate and they're like your house may burn down and i was like oh my god they're like you have five minutes i was like what can i pull off the wall what is the most important and that's why i think of this i'll tell you something this is a very la discussion but i live in the hills and i i have sort of my this sort of my condo where i kind of keep everything locked up and alarmed and everything and i've been trying for years to renovate our house but to build like a giant thing so i could bring the stuff up and just as we were kind of getting the plans together about three years ago is when the fires sort of started and so i'd been spending all this time going i gotta bring everything up and now it's like maybe i bring everything elsewhere or just <laughs> underground move, move to another state nothing seems <laughs> Uh, thanks to people like Prof. Wait, you didn't the question. Oh, What's I'm, your- I'm avoiding the question. No, no. Well, I would say, uh, I mean, it would be a recent, a re- <laughs> it would be a recent acquisition from this past prop store auction that is still sitting, getting payment planned. Yeah, as it's, we speak. it's safe. Yeah, yeah. It would be the uh, the 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 leg machine gun leg from Robert Rodriguez's Planet Terror. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah All that, right. It would be that thing, though. Yeah. But I, speaking of uh, a prop store. Um, Thanks to people like them, and for anyone listening who doesn't know, they're an auction house and reseller of these kinds of items. There's definitely become a bit more awareness of the hobby, I would say. They're, they're really good at publicizing heritage and profiles, and our profiles when it used to, and now as, as it is at Heritage, uh, are as well. For those who might not know, and this is the first time they're hearing, that this whole world exists, is there a way that you can describe the charge that it gets you to hold these items. I mean, uh, like I've tried explaining it to people. I've, I've had moments where I've held stuff 
from productions that mean a lot to me where I've actually cried. Like I just uncontrollably started weeping just because some of these items are just imbued with so much energy. And it's not only the energy of everybody who's made the thing, but the kinetic energy almost of everybody who's seen the movie. It's like you feel all this stuff kind of rushing at you when you see these items in one place, either at a museum or you're actually holding them in your hands. It is really indescribable and gives you kind of that adrenaline rush that turns into hobby or addiction. I don't know. But can you guys elaborate on on that feeling? Adrenaline is a great word. I always liken it to it's sort of that moment in Pulp Fiction where they find the they find the shot and they kind of, you know, they, they, you know, they make the X on her chest and they put it in and she just comes, you know, like only it's a thingy of nostalgia. I mean, it's just, you know, for Star Wars, you know, for me, I was seven years old when Star Wars came out and, you know, I sat through it twice with my dad. I remember I read the comic book with my father, my mother going to like Bloomingdale's and Alexander's to the toy departments to shop. It's all of that. It's the Star Wars costumes I wore. It's it's the the magazines. It's the, the I said the comics. It's it's all of that. It's it's everything. I mean, I saw it in the theater, probably a solid 14 or 15 times during that first like you know two-year run of it and it's all of that into that you know you know it's that moment and i that's the the that's the that's the closest thing i can point to for what it's worth you could also point to the uh the briefcase that may or may not contain marcellus wallace's soul you know (laughs) and it just glows on your face i mean Yeah, I think, I don't know. I mean, an auction win is a different thing because I think there's sort of a gambler's rush that's involved I, in I, there. Yeah, that's it. But I just mean the, the possession. The, 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 the having the thing, which, which yeah, there's definitely, um, yeah, it's there's definitely a charge, but it's, it's I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard to explain. I think it's the thing that the collectors, you know, collectors seek out. And we, it's, it's, it is dopamine. I mean, we actually, there's another, you know, plugging our podcast again we, we did another episode with a uh psychologist who specializes and wrote a book in inside the collector's brain she herself is a collector and um talks about collecting from the pers- perspective of it being a healthy outlet for for a dopamine release and essentially you know how the collector's brain works and how it catalogs things and how we think about um displaying and arraying you know our objects and researching them and how it is you know, instead of drinking and gambling and other vices that you could get into, it is actually a healthy, uh, you know, out, output for those kinds of feelings. But, but she just says, you know, collectors are essentially wired differently and we get, we get a dopamine hit out of, um, out of discovery. And, uh, she talks a lot about novelty, which I think is a big, is a big thing for us and finding something new. I mean, it's always, you know, it's always cool to see that thing in the newest auction catalog that, you know, sold seven years ago and, oh, there it is again. And I missed it last time. And here it is, it's double the price, but I have a chance to get it again. That's always cool. But when something brand new, like when that X-Wing showed up and nobody had ever seen an X-Wing in private hands, I was never bidding on that X-Wing myself, but I got that rush seeing it because it was just the the excitement of, oh my goodness, you know, here we are 45 years later and they're still shaking major objects out of probably the most desired collected film of, you know, in, in the hobby of, you know, the original Star Wars. Um, and I think all that stuff is exciting. I mean, I, I get excited by the, the community, uh, of it, talking to other collectors, you know, you know, uh, talking to guys like Dave 
analyzing things. I get, I get excited by the research, um, figuring out what it is, learning the history of it and the provenance, talking to people that worked on the film, talking to the people that made the objects. For me, it's all wrapped up in that. Of course, owning them and, you know, and winning and, and, you know, putting it into your, uh, into your trophy cabinet and getting to, you know, getting to look at it under the soft LED lighting is very, very satisfying. But I, I just think it's, it's just, you know, our lives are so crazy, particularly with, uh, I think the jobs that Dave and I do to have that other calling, that other thing that just pulls you out of it for a minute. There's a big reason that we do the podcast. I think we're both, you know, neither one of us really need a podcast in our lives, uh, nor do we have any time to do it. But I just think, I just think it's such a, it's such a fun outlet that, that sort of encompasses all the things that bring us, you know, spark joy, you know, to use a Marie Kondo term in us about, uh, about collecting. And it really is, I, you know, outside of my family and, and, and friends, I mean, it's probably the thing that I derive the most pure joy from because, you know, work is very hard and challenging and whatever, and there is accomplishment and whatever, but it's, it's just, it's so much hardship to, to get, to get there. I think it's just, this is a, a pure exercise. I feel it's very like much like being a kid. It's like the sort of freedom and joy of being a child. And that's the thing that you're trying to reconnect to. So I think all of that is kind of rolled, rolled up in there. And for the person listening, whose ears have been perked by all this, I mean, think of your favorite movie, something that resonates with you personally or so deeply that it's inspired you. Maybe that has changed you and given you a new outlook on life or whatever, simply entertained you maybe to a profound level. So you can connect yourself to it in a very unique way. This is what we're talking about. So basically, there seems to be like three ways of going about this hobby. There's auction houses and resellers, there's private sales, and then what I call like kind of the Indiana Jones method. Do you have a preferred way of doing things that bring you uh, the closest to the hobby or bring you the most joy? I was just going to throw one thing in really quickly and I will answer that question, which is I was just going to say is the other thing, too, is because I just never want to. I mean, we do talk about big numbers and payment plans and all of that kind of stuff. But for like one of your listeners, if they're they've they're like interested, but they're worried. The beautiful thing is on even some of the biggest movies, your Star Wars, your Raiders, your you know, whatever you want to pick. But again, pick whatever movie you want. There might be a piece of production related ephemera, like a call sheet or something that you might be able to pick up for a couple of hundred dollars or Xeroxes of storyboards and things like that, that especially again, you may get somewhere else in your collecting, but you will have something that was used by the crew on this thing that I I love as much as some of my big items. And you will be able to find for a something that doesn't require a payment plan or, well, maybe you need a payment plan for $200. That's okay too. But my point is it's, it's accessible. Everything doesn't have to be $10,000 and there are big things and there are small things. And I do think that is just sort of a, uh, just, I don't know, a, a wonderful part of it. Um, uh, to answer your question, uh, and I don't, I'm guessing Ryan will have the same answer. I do think, look, we don't, I don't have the time for it the way I used to, but the Indiana Jonesing of it all, where you actually can hunt something down, which often leads you back to someone who perhaps worked on the movie, perhaps made the piece, were involved with some aspect of it. Maybe they didn't make it. Maybe they were the ones deploying it on set. Maybe they were given it to wear and they were an actor again, but usually that can often lead to a more direct connection to those films. And there is a real, 
again, additional pleasure of the making of and hearing the story of how I did this or what I did with this or all of that kind of stuff that, you know, at the end of the day is a lot better than I outbid everybody else. (laughs) You know, how else do you say that? But Brian, I'm assuming you're going to sort of be a little similar there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, honestly, I, you know, of course, I mean, you know, hunting down something in the wild is the greatest satisfaction you can get as a collector. And I think it goes beyond that. I think it's actually, I see it as a, a service done to these objects and to this, and to this hobby and to the interests of it, because really ultimately you don't know where all that stuff is going to end up. And I'm sure there's stuff right now that's been socked away by people thinking, Oh, one day, you know, I'll figure you know, find somebody that loves this film and sell it. And then sadly, you know, especially with the films that Dave and I collect from a lot of those people are getting older. A lot of them have passed away already and or they or they move or something like that and then i just i just think i i, I don't even want to know about it i don't want to think about it you just have to think of so much of this stuff being in somebody's attic in a box and just ends up you know at the at the at the curb at the end um so i think going in and finding these things um does sort of liberate them in a sense the way you know the way kent warner did um back in the day but 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 to me you know, the Indiana Jones, the archaeology of of this and reaching out to old crew and people that worked on the film and finding and unearthing something, it wraps all that stuff up onto one. It's it's research, it's discovery, it's novelty, it's um it's it's you know, finding something that is nobody has ever seen before, brand new. You know, when I I tracked down one of the original uh Atlanteans from the original Conan the Barbarian. Um, and other than the one in possession of John Milius and Arnold Schwarzenegger, I mean, there were four of them. So the, that was two. Nobody had ever seen one. Nobody had ever seen one in the wild and, and private hands. And there it was. You know, I tracked it down in, in uh, Ventura County and uh, and and picked, you know, took it out of a guy's trunk in a in a in a Bank of America parking lot on the 101. And uh, it was it was inc- just incredible. And the, but the. You know, not only the joy of finding that piece, but also the story that comes with it and the feeling of, you know, I, I was like Conan. I went into that cave and found the, uh, you know, found the old uh, the old king sitting on the throne and, and discovered this thing and then took it, took it for my own. I mean, I just I, you know, uh, that, that to me is the is the apex of it. And usually, you know, it, it in mo- not in all cases, but in most cases, it saves you a little bit of money, too, which is which is always nice. It sort of ticks all the boxes. Well, that also where the whip and the gun come in handy when you're indiana <laughs> very true <laughs> very true yeah i mean the, yeah that must have i mean uh, well i know for a fact the feeling that it has it kind of has that howard carter at the tomb of king tut and you're you're stepping on sand that hasn't been stepped on before in some of these cases and i remember dave there's even a story where you you ended up hiring a private investigator and you talk about that on the show to find something <laughs> No, I, I, I hired a private investigator to help me track down a guy had posted online about uh, some Star Wars poster art, original original poster art that was connected to the, uh, the Burger King, Coca-Cola glasses and poster. And it was a guy that was like, it seemed like he was looking to sell it, but didn't quite know what to do. And I didn't have his info. I just had this random post and was able to use it. And I hired a private eye and tracked him down. And not only not only did I end up making the deal, but also got to know the guy a little bit, really good guy. His dad was the one, you know, one of these untold parts of the Star Wars myth. His dad worked at Coca-Cola and thought Star Wars was going to be a cool thing and made 
you know, arguably one of the earliest, most important, you know, fast food beverage movie tie-in, yeah. You know, deals. <laughs> and again, you know, sort of a, now we take those kinds of what's the word tie-ins is very commonplace you know we're we're surprised if a new movie comes out and it doesn't have a mcdonald's or burger king or whatever tie-in but there was a time where that was a novel idea anyway fascinating guy got to hear the whole story but also obviously you know got the art and again it was it was it was you know again i can i wish i could tell you it was more like being in a you know raymond chandler or sam thing it, it wasn't but it was still really cool i did hire a private eye so that was okay it's yeah. amazing the boo crew will be right back ghostbuster dan Aykroyd here with an important message for all got termites call an exterminator got ghosts call ghostbusters from teeny paranormal pixies to gargantuan apparitions we'll get that ghost to take a hike we use only the very latest in subatomic neutronoans operated by highly trained professionals who are prompt fast and courteous safe even for small children and pets we own and operate our own ectomobile on call 24 hours a day including holidays and if you call right now we'll include in our basic home service a free poltergeist inspection of your car truck camper or off-road vehicle but wait that's not all. We'll also include our leatherette-bound pamphlet of do-it-yourself exorcisms, as well as a lovely full-color Ghostbusters inspection certificate suitable for framing. But there's more. You'll also receive a souvenir sample of your spirit's ectoplasmic residue encased in genuine polypropylene. Come and watch us work in Ghostbusters, the supernatural comedy at movie theaters everywhere. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. If we don't get the ghost, you don't get the bill. Ghostbusters. They're here to save the world. I wanted to ask you guys this. Often when we hear production wraps, a studio will take the stuff, put it in a crate, never to be seen again. Is that the ultimate dead end? Does that mean when that happens and someone didn't nick something off the set, is there any way to get that stuff out of there as a collector? Or is that... Yeah, I mean, the best time to take something is after right at the end of production before everything gets archived because then you're not taking something off the set and violating continuity uh for those of you that work on on crews and you're not then stealing something out of an archive you know when it's all ephemera that was used in the making and it's scattered out on tables and whatever people are packing up that's the best time to walk with something um because yeah once it goes into those archives especially now the archives are are so very corporate and um uh so kind of locked down and locked in what's up dave oh i was just gonna say but you're even talking about stuff where people are trying to archive them we're like i don't know they're making a marvel movie and they're very Mm. worried about the stuff or something like that uh you'll all laugh a little bit like i took a couple of things but we were shooting euro trip in prague and i grabbed a couple of other of odds and ends but there were things i wanted like those i think as far as i know they're in a storage unit in prague like no one wanted to pay to bring that back to america the euro trip props are not in an archive somewhere i think they're just rotting somewhere and no one really cares and the honest answer is i've once in a blue moon attempted to say to somebody hey is there any chance and they look at me a like i'm crazy but also we don't even know where they are so not everything is archive but it you know it is this thing of like yeah no the stuff just disappears nowadays at least they have a slight eye on 
selling them if they can. Like we're going to just put them in auction. We're going to dump the stuff where if we can get, you know, some, a little bit of money back, that's something. And obviously some productions are more successful than others, but as shows are wrapping, you are seeing these, you know, we did one for Veep where they did, I mean, I didn't do it, but it was, HBO had a deal and Veep ended and a month later there were these Veep auctions. I mean, you know, and they were, they were not elaborate auctions the way like a prop store auction is, you know, there was no catalog. It was all online. Things were identified. Other things were not identified and it just sell what you can and for what you can. Do you know what I mean? And it's a different way of doing it. But again, for HBO, I'm guessing they were getting a little bit of money back, which is, I guess, all they really wanted. Now, again, not a genre thing very much, you know, a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily unique or recognizable, a red dress, a blue dress, a red dress, a blue dress. But so that is, you know, again, the modern business of like these productions end and they sometimes just sell it off as quick as they can. There's no, I don't know if there's any perfect answer or any perfect system. You grab it when you can, however you can. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think too, the studios like this idea now of fan interaction um, and having that connection. Cause usually I think, I think the MGM auction back in 1970 had a real kind of uh, scarlet letter on it a bit, because I think people sort of looked at it as like, Oh, it's like the, the, the lion of Hollywood, you know, the great, the greatest movie studio of all time is, is in such disarray and disrepair and financial ruin that it's actually selling off its history um, out the back door, essentially it's having a big yard sale, but I think these auctions now have become, uh, little billboards and, you know, marketing events and fan, you know, it's an opportunity for social media and fan interaction. So I think certain studios do, do like them. Others really kind of, I think still, uh, poo poo them a bit, but, um, but it's an, it's a nice way. Certainly if you're a collector, that's a really nice way to get in. Um, no better time to buy something when they're selling all of it, because there will always be deals to be had uh in in that movie that you like the thing that makes me laugh the most is like you know they make a movie and it's like you know and again not me but like someone is like hey will you sell that stuff we you know we want to do an auction and it's like oh no we can't sell it we want to make a second one you know whatever it is yeah and they make the second one and they redesign every prop and cop for the second and it's just like, and then they redesign. You know, it's like, and then they redesign it for the third one. And it's just like, I guess it's just excuses, and they don't want to sell it. But it always makes me laugh. You're not going to reuse a single thing. You're going to literally remake everything. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, like that uh, VIP auction for Knives Out is a great example of one of those auctions where they sold a bunch of stuff from that production, and there were deals to be had. I miss I missed uh, the eBay uh, the eBay days of uh, VIP fan auction with all those amazing deals. I, yeah, completely. Yeah. Did they have hero stuff? Like, did they have you know like the what's his name sweater? Did they have the like? Was it a was it a full? Yeah, uh, they, yeah, yeah. It's on my wall. Yeah, it is. Oh. That sweater's on my that wall. cream and yeah, uh, yeah. I screen match. That's great. It, so, yeah. oh, I love that. That's great. Dave, the award-nominated film Hercules uh, sold through VIP auctions. That's right. uh, That's right. Two-time award-nominated. Remember, I think that auction got an award, too, of some sort. (laughs) I think, well, nominated. Nominated. But it was was an honor to be nominated. (laughs) 
One of my favorite episodes you guys did is the uh, fakes and fugazis episode where you, you really started that running joke of having uh, George Lucas as the special guest on the show. I thought it was put together so well and how you guys kind of started out boiling up to this introduction of having George on the podcast. And of course, he doesn't show up, but it was to illustrate that point, uh, an important point in the hobby. Can you guys just briefly kind of talk about that side of collecting this stuff? Um. I'll just tell you a funny story, which is I was in the, uh, I was driving my son to camp today. Um, and he's very into basketball and like basketball cards and stuff. And just to show you that I'm fully insane. Um, I grew up a Yankee fan. I love the Yankees. Um, and I don't know, there's something about like Aaron judge right now and making his home run run kind of a thing. I don't know, like someone I know put up a picture of like an Aaron Judge rookie card, whatever. And one thing led to another. And on eBay last week, I bought four unopened boxes of 2017 Topps Heritage cards, which weren't crazy expensive. But the idea is in there is an Aaron. There are there are three Aaron Judge cards. There's a there's like a rookie card labeled rookie. And then there's like a black autograph and a red autograph, the red autograph being super rare, the black autograph being pretty rare and the rookie card, the being, you know, also rare. And we've this last week, I basically, he and I have been opening packages together and we, we hit the black autograph and we hit the, the rookie card. So of course now he thinks every time you open a package, you get the card, which of course is a terrible lesson. But anyway, we were, we were driving today and we were talking about how these are now, you know, you buy them, they're autographed in the package. But he was talking about what's it like when you get an autograph card, like if you meet the player and get it signed. And we were talking about, and I was trying to explain to him that there's an entire business of people faking signatures on movie posters, baseball cards and whatever. And so in some ways, Yes, you can take a picture of yourself getting the card autograph. You can, you know, you can do all of these things. But if you want to sell something like that, you actually have to probably pay for an autograph authentication because we can go right now. We could all go right now onto eBay and find an autograph Star Wars poster that was a poster from probably two years ago that have signatures from actors that died 20 years ago. I mean, that. That is is eBay in a nutshell, and that is the problem, possibly with the United States of America right now. But anyway, um, and but again, it is this it is this thing where, you know, we always talk about like, why would you just believe a guy on eBay or here? It's got a COA. Well, because okay, I just printed you a COA too that says, you know. It just, it's this insane thing. And it's not just us, you know, the whole that, did you guys read that story, the Basquiat art exhibit down in Florida that like was like painted on a FedEx box. that was from the wrong year. Like it, like it was a FedEx box from after he was dead. I mean, these prices bring out the criminals and it's unfortunately that, and, and again, on whatever level you want to call it, it's still criminal action. And, just, and yeah. And they're preying on, you know, sometimes they're preying on your greed, but oftentimes they're preying on your nostalgia and your desire. This thing, I just want to, I just want to, I want, I want to believe it's X-Files. It's, I want to believe, I want to believe that's 
Alec Guinness's signature. I love Mark Hamill. I just want his signature on something. And I know it doesn't look like any Mark Hamill signature ever done if you spent a minute, you know, trying to look at it. But they, it's got a COA from knowing you buy it. And it just, it's, it's the worst part of our hobby just because it's so rampant. And it's, it's true of autographs across the board. There are fake movie posters and we're starting to see not only are we seeing fake movie props and also we've talked about this too things made for production things made as crew gifts because 3d printing is so easy right now so there are these things that match a thousand percent with a screen used prop except they were made for an executive um i just did a thing i don't know if you guys saw it uh ryan knows this there was the uh uh, the uh, Heritage had an auction. They had Joel Silver's collection, uh, the producer yeah. Joel Silver. And in it, he had some stuff from the Matrix, the light, including one of the lightning guns from the first Matrix. And the Warchowskis had sold one in a Potter and Potter auction about two months ago or a month and a half ago. And the one from the Warchowskis sold, sold for about $70,000. The one that Joel Silver had didn't sell. And it was an after value sale. They, they were offering it for $25,000 if you want it. So, I pulled it out to start kind of looking, and very quickly I realized the one that the Warchowski sold sort of screen matches, and the handles are kind of like this, and this one was kind of a lefty. It was the opposite. It was like, I don't know where it was used. I don't know. I mean, again, I believe it was what it was, but it's not the one you see on screen. So that's not yeah. a fake, but again, in that catalog, it is being sold with a picture of the one that's like this, even though it's like this, as if it's the same and it's not. And that's not even a fake, but we say on the show, do your research, do your research, do your research. You truly can't take anyone's word. If it's, someone, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Ryan. Well, I was going to say, it's really amazing too, because even when you say do your research, it might panic people and make them hes- hesitant to, to roll in. But really the film tells you a lot and it's people are lazy ultimately. And if you if you just go and freeze frame the matrix the way Dave, Dave doesn't have any you know any super spy software or any report ball thing. Where yeah, like yeah, yeah. Zooming in on you no, know, it's not Blade Runner where I'm zooming in on snake scales. It's yeah. literally freeze frame. Wait a second. That's what back. am I? Lo- yeah. <laughs> what What am I looking at? And. And he's, you know, he's not phoning up Keanu and asking him, hey, what, you know, what, what was going on that day on the Matrix set? And look, if you have those connections, it's great. But, but really, the film tells you a whole lot. And, you know, there's this whole thing going on uh, on the Internet. There's, I, it's one of those things that I'm sure, Dave, you got sent this article 10 times. I got sent it 25 times that, you know, David Harbour in the latest Stranger Things was wielding Conan the Barbarian's actual sword. And uh, I, I just don't buy it. I don't. I think that's a very fun story cooked up by the publicity machine. I don't believe that anybody would loan their, you know, forty-year-old artifact to be to be used in a film production again. I mean, I believe that somebody loaned one to have it replicated to be used in the film, and wouldn't that be fun? Or bought a really nice replica and then and then thought it'd be a great story to say it was actually Conan's sword used in the film, but. You know, is this whole story about it. it's Conan the Barbarian, whatever. And then when you look at all the articles and when they're detailing, showing this close up photo of it, 
it doesn't match anything that you see in Conan the Barbarian. The sword's wrong. So I think at the at the at the very best, it's a Conan the Destroyer sword because the, the 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 hilt is very different on the uh, on yeah. the Destroyer sword that you you Long. can't see into yeah much longer. But you know simple that was quick simple and i stared at it long enough that as soon as i saw the screenshot i didn't even have to go reference the film i knew that it wasn't the thing that they were saying it was right away something was wrong and that doesn't mean that it's not used that doesn't mean the story is not true it doesn't mean it wasn't from conan the destroyer or some something else but it was not from conan the barbarian it just simply isn't and and this, a simple you know taking a pause looking at the image in front of you and and looking at it with an objective eye not with an eye of like oh i, I really i hope i love that story it is such a great story you know the, the series that's based on 1980s nostalgia using actual movie props from nostalgic and 1980s films it's a great story probably why they told it but it's just not you know the thing that they're saying it is it is not unless it's the people who lent uh, kim kardashian the marilyn monroe dress oh. <laughs> god unfortunately that, that was real yeah <laughs> right Unbelievable! I gotta say too, like I, I know we don't have time to get into the story, but I'm gonna point everybody to Stuff Dreams Are Made of podcast to hear Ryan. I mean, this epic saga of a whole rabbit hole you went down with someone, ultimately in this direction of um, something that may or may not have been real is just unbelievable. Probably one of the best, most interesting <laughs> stories I've ever heard down this path, but wow. Yeah. And it's a good, you know, you should go check it out. It's, um, it's uh, season one, uh, fakes and fugazis, uh, I think is the episode title, but it, it, it was an example of me desperately wanting something to be true and really, really wanting it. And, t- but still having the discipline to take the time, and measure myself and not dive all the way in and not let not let greed and excitement you know take over for the objective the left brain mind there was a, there were enough warning signs going on your brain there's a thing that goes on and, I, and this probably happens when you're deeper into your collecting career i know i know dave has this thing too because we've talked about it before there's just a sense that you have when you pick up something and it's real i can't describe exactly what it is but it's sort of the it's not, it's kind of not as great as you want it to be because it's been kind of cobbled together for the use in the film. It's not meant to show up, stand up to close in, inspection. It's built slightly differently than you thought it would be or would be in your memory, but there's something about it, the way it looks, feels, smells, um, the, a- the apparent age on it. Usually you can just tell these things, but listen, that's not the only thing you're looking at. You need to go do the physical, do the, do the left brain practical research as well you trust your instincts because in that story from, from the, the podcast, there were, there were fuses blowing in my brain and not in a good way. And I couldn't reconcile them really, but I slowed down and I took my time because it was so well done. Whatever ruse was being played on me, it was so thought out. And so, you know, it, it was a con I was in. I mean, I don't, I don't know how else to describe it, but I took my time and, and, and I was able to extricate myself without any real harm done other than, you know, time and hours and, and sadly, you know, emotional heartache. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Wow. Yeah. Incredible story. Uh, before I ask you guys about displaying your collection, I, I was really curious, Ryan, cause you mentioned the pulse rifle rifle. Did that belong to Corporal Hicks or Ripley in the movie? Well, uh, we don't really know. I mean, the honest answer is everybody probably used it. It was one of the, f- one of the probably four firing heroes that they had. It's not the hero hero. Oh, moved around. Yeah. 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 It's not the one that, 
from the show me scene where you know hicks shows ripley and the counter lights up and all that mine actually doesn't have a, a, a working counter on it the thinking was that there was a probably a hero that was made to stand up to very close inspection on the film. And this is the one you always see Ripley carrying in the egg chamber and all that. But then when they were actually firing them, there were probably, they were, there were other practical rifles that were more made to stand up to the rigors of having to fire and be reloaded and be cleaned. So I think that hero hero was kind of kept clean and pristine. And the thinking is that James Cameron probably took that one home, even though it's not, nobody has proof and, it hasn't been seen in his offices. There have been enough stories and connections and, Oh, I did actually see it stories that I, I believe that uh, he has the, the, what we would call the a hero or the hero hero. In terms of displaying your props, uh, do you guys display them in your home for guests to see, or do you have a much grander plan to display them publicly someday? For me, uh, I have them in my house. I keep them I, in my office. I just, you know, it, it's in a, definitely in a private space. It's not in a, a space that people move through all the time because you do want to keep it secure and, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a nest camera up there, uh, you know, sort of watching, uh, what, what goes on. Um, uh, and, and, you know, you want to keep your stuff secure and kind of locked up and and insured. There's all that stuff that goes along with it. But yeah, I like having my stuff around and around me. And I think I've always had it in my office where I work. Cause I just, I think, you know, being surrounded by the things that inspired you or is inspiring and, and, uh, and does help, or at the very least it's your, it's your betters staring over your shoulder and challenging it is. <laughs> to do to do better um but uh i don't i mean i i would certainly lend something to a museum but I'm, i don't think i'm 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 my brain is definitely not on the museum track i like my sort of private condal archive uh, what about you dave yeah i mean i you know people are always like oh you should open a museum or whatever and uh that is not the business i want to be in uh allow me to say that um that being said from my other collection my comic art collection i've lent many pieces i'm constantly lending stuff to various comic art or superhero exhibits there's an exhibition going on right now they built that uh, comic-con museum down in san diego and they're doing a big spider-man exhibit and i have a couple of pieces in that right now so i'm always game for that and certainly you know if i don't know the academy museum ever called me and said we'd like to you know have your thing i think that would be really cool and you know when i've done it in that way, you know, professional art shippers come over and, you know, it's, it's done, it's done right. And that part is really, really kind of cool. Uh, my stuff is sort of in my old apartment office kind of thing. And it's a big old mess right now, just because of between the COVID and being away, just, it's kind of a disaster area, but it periodically kind of gets back into shape. And I like having people over to see it, but it's definitely not like in my living room or anything like that. Uh, I don't know. For a long time, I certainly had young kids and certainly didn't want anything breaking, whatever, and sunlight and various things of that nature. So, you know, again, sort of in a more controlled environment, but no, no, no interest to lose all my money by opening a museum. So that's not my plan. Yeah. Growing up, I, I collected some stuff from the 80s, like you said, some of those Star Wars toys and all that. And over the years, I realized that I do not live in the environment where I can collect anything because everything I've ever had either yellowed, warped, fell apart, you know, disintegrated. So I just I'm just not a collector at all. So I'm like the outlier here. But listening to your podcast, though, I'm very, very fascinated because you guys have been teasing about this feeding and care guide. And I, and I really, really want to know 
how you guys maintain your props. I know it's got to do with temperature, humidity, and keeping it away from sun and all that. But uh, is that coming soon? Is there is there a big deep dive into that? Uh, I mean, we we will talk about. I think uh, you know we're, we're, we keep teasing this fourth season. Dave and I have just been very busy. I've been running around promoting uh, my television show. Uh, Dave has been uh, very busy at work as well. So I think we're, I think once we both settle in uh, probably, I think later this month, I think we'll get back to recording. We have a bunch of things that topics that we're eager to discuss. That's certainly one of them. I mean, look, I think I, you, you know, Leo, you, you highlighted a bunch of it, you know, stay out of direct sunlight, uh, temperature and humidity are a big concern. You want to have it in a place where you can control those things and know, even if you go away for two weeks, that generally the, you know, the temperature is going to stay the same. Um, you want to properly display your things. You want to keep, keep them in a place where if it's a form, the form is held so that it doesn't, you know, the, you know, there's this sad graveyard of, uh, Michael Keaton, Batman cows that have all kind of just melted and drooped and fallen apart. And it's part of it is the material, but it's really because the proper structure was never put, you know, put beneath it. I have, I have one that's, that's wonderful. And that had to be restored a bit and repaired because it had cracked and pulled and whatever, but it's essentially fully mounted permanently mounted to a casting of michael keaton's bust uh from the from the original uh uh mold process how they made the cows and they they were able to make like kind of a life cast of him to hold the form and now i never you know once as long as i keep temperature humidity and uh sunlight uh uh you know off of it um it'll it'll look that way forever because the form is held so those are just things that you have to think about and you know with with any clothing you know keeping moths and pests away from it it's it you know and ensuring your items and you know keeping it at you know having a fire alarm system yeah you do have to think about these things because you you want you want to look after your stuff and you want it to you know everything ages of course but you want to keep it in 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 i think better condition then whoever you got it from was keeping it in the, the, yeah, the crew guy that had it in his, uh, 130 degree attic for 20 years, um, before it came to you. Um, and also, you, you know, it's expensive. These things are expensive and valuable now and you want, you want them to hold their value and be able to be enjoyed, um, by a uh, future generation. Yeah. I mean, I have no intention of selling, you know, my favorite things, but I sort of assume on some level, you know, that will be for my children to get rid of, you know, to sell and have a, you know, quite the fire sale when the time comes um, as they're wheeling me into some old age home or whatever. But uh, what I was going to say, though, is I, I certainly don't want to damage them. Like, I have no interest in selling them, but obviously I want them to be what they are. And it is a, it is unfortunately true that, like, a lot of what's great about how you want to keep them don't necessarily lend themselves to life. So for example, I have a condo that I have like put in full on blackout curtains. Like you don't mm. see the sun. It's not like sometime in the day you see the sun, the sun doesn't exist. It's like you're, you're in a casino basically and the air condition runs and all of that kind of stuff. But so it wouldn't be a great place to live, but it's a very fine place to keep stuff. And that, you know, that you get pulled in those different kind of directions in terms of, you know, keeping them, you know, sort of in your house, you know, where, where it better to have a room that you can sort of whatever, a prop room that you can sort of feel like you could shut the door and there, it is cool in there and there is no sun and you're not thinking to yourself, yeah. you know, why do I not have sun anywhere? So again, it's things like that. 
I love uh, listening to your show because it just listening to you guys uh, chase after or acquire these props that are near and dear to my heart from these movies, you know, that you guys also love. Uh, but I'm curious, what is the one unicorn prop you'd each love to have in your collection someday? Hmm. I mean, for me, it's a hero Han Solo blaster. Easy. From the original trilogy. I should say. Did something pop up? I've been seeing some on Facebook. Was there some auction that purported to have one? Was it was that was it a real deal? Well, it's definitely part of it is real. Something um, is real. Yeah. Something real on it. I'm not quite sure as much of what they think it is is it. And that's a it's a tough one. And you know, again, different different uh what's the word I'm looking for? Different collecting groups. I think certain things are more acceptable than other ones. So for example, like with cars, if you have the frame with the VIN number, like even if it's just the the frame of the car and then everything else is like added on later, but onto that original VIN number frame, I think that's still considered the car. I'm not quite as comfortable in the world of props having a piece of it. Now that's yeah. me, but I find that sometimes things are sold like that and they are fudged as to what those numbers and percentages are. And that's something I I guess I want to take a closer look, but that is a piece that we've known about for a while. And there have been some changes to it. I guess there was a different gun that it was attached to. And now they're saying we've got another one, but by what I've read, they are saying this is the gun because the color is more right. And I, I, I need to know more. So I will, I will withhold judgment, but I guess is the yeah. answer. Yeah. I want an, I want a numbers matching uh, Han Solo blaster. I want, I want chassis engine and transmission to all line up with preferably with original paint job. I, I love Han Solo as well. Unfortunately, I have a screen. Yes. Yeah, thank you, Dave. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Jedi <laughs> with proper numbers and paperwork. But anyway, yes. Th- yes, thank you. No, I mean, look, my dream prop, which sort of the back end of our season was prop. I mean, specifically that one, I don't know, but I have been trying to find a true scratch built ILM model, preferably from Star Wars or Empire, because more of those were scratch built. As you get to Jedi, they were able to use model kits because there were like X-Wing model kits and they were using off the shelf off the shelf and yes, painting them and putting lights in them. But that's not what I want. I will. And this X-Wing that showed up in auction that I, I lost out on was a, you know, full on handmade, probably painted by Joe Johnston. I mean, it, so something like that, I guess, would be the dream. And for those wondering to get that close to one's dream and having it taken and snatched away from you, uh, really, really sucked. It was sort of better when it didn't exist. Just- <laughs> right. <laughs> but do you feel better because you're like, I saved all this money? That's what I do. When I lose something, I'm like, no, trying to make myself no. feel better. Okay. No. 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 Not even that. No. No. Yeah. That's the great thing about this hobby. Like you said, you never know what comes up. You never know what's still out there. If that's out there, anything's possible, right? I, I, I one could only hope, but uh, sometimes the unicorn should stay a unicorn. Right. 
<laughs> I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Okay. Well, as we get as we get to the end here, I mean, being a horror podcast, I mean, the the, the pulse rifle really does hit that hit that realm for sure. But is there anything else, Ryan, that you have in your collection that kisses the horror genre that you could highlight or talk about briefly? I mean, for sure, it's not a creature prop. I actually don't have any creature props, but uh, uh, and it's something that I've, I've wanted, particularly from this franchise. Uh, I'll go a couple of years earlier, seven years earlier, the original Alien. I have a full head to toe Captain Dallas costume from the the when he goes out in the in the spacesuit and when Kane gets meets the face hugger. Uh, so it's from that it's from that sequence, and it's about now. I, I did some work on it to make it more complete because there were some uh, missing parts and then replica parts that were on it that I replaced with original. So I, I basically it's it's now like an eighty to eighty five percent complete uh, head to toe Dallas costume. You know, helmet helmet flight suit boots backpack belly box, you know, all the belt, you know, belt holster rig, uh, gloves. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really cool. I think from one of the most iconic, you know, sci-fi horror films of oh, all time. For sure. Do you have it displayed on a mannequin or anything like that? Or is it in its pieces? <laughs> right now it's folded up in storage because I don't have room for it. in uh, and because I'm living overseas in, uh, in London for the show. Uh, but yes, there is a mannequin and one day that mannequin will become much better than it, than it was. It needed some work and I was doing it while we were moving. So I just had to kind of bail on it and fold it all up and put it away. But yes, the idea is that one day that will be, um, you know, just kind of the centerpiece kind of looming in my collection. It's my only full figure that I have, but it's, I love it. It's great. Oh, it's amazing. Dave, how about you? I am the biggest scaredy cat in the world. Um, I, 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 I don't dislike horror movies, but I am such a chicken. Like, like, I, like, I kid you not, like the large Marge moment in like, Pee-wee's uh, like scared the shit out of me as a child. I mean, I don't know how to explain it. I can't like deal with it on any like conscious level. Um, so the closest I have, I don't, I barely like my horror knowledge is rudimentary at best. And there are movies like the it movies recently where my children have seen the it movies and I've never seen the <laughs> because i'm that scared the closest i have to anything which is nothing is i actually have some wonderful drawings actually from raiders by joe johnston of the angels of death oh yeah open which is that one moment in there where it gets very horror-y and you can also see the ilm connection very to me there's a you can draw a line from that section of the art getting open right to uh, Poltergeist and the work they did in Poltergeist. So from a special effects design thing, I do have that, but I am truly grasping at straws to offer up anything vaguely connected to horror movies. I will say for me, I would love if I had something from like a Rosemary baby, like that's my, that's the kind of horror, which by the way, also scares the fuck out of me. I, but I can kind of deal with that kind of horror. And so that is on my list of, I'd love to have something from that, but I don't. So but you got ghostbusters, right? Do you still have ghostbusters stuff? Horror, though? Really? Is that still? I, I consider it. Yeah. Genre adjacent for sure. Horror comedy. Yeah. And the one that never scared me. So that's at least good. I have a, I have a, a ghost trap that was used actually in, it's a hero ghost trap that was actually used in both films. So 
it was made for one and then they put uh, a couple of different kind of greeblies on the outside it changes ever so slightly and they used it in two but it's from both movies basically and it's the hero one that had the smoke the lights and like the like the whole thing for for the electronics and everything and probably was maybe one of the ones that like went into the uh possibly into when the traps uh when the when the light screen the trap is clean oh yeah the storage unit thing yeah for that too um i have not been able to screen match it but that's my best guess on it so yeah oh that's amazing well guys all right we're taking so much of your time we could do this for like three more hours i swear so it's dave mandel it's ryan condal the show is the stuff the dreams are made of you can follow them at props podcast on twitter and instagram email them at dreams are made of podcast at gmail.com guys thank you so much for doing what you do and please don't ever stop we love it <laughs> yeah. not not even not even if our wives demand it we will not stop <laughs> what if i find the red autograph aaron judge card what if i get that tonight and i just cash it in and i'm done, <laughs> You're done that's, and it. that's it <laughs> let's do an episode about that dave that'd be a good episode <laughs> awesome you guys thank you so much for taking the time to do this we both know you're extraordinarily you busy and we appreciate it so much man we're huge fans that was the boot crew podcast episode 343 special thanks to our guests dave mandel and ryan condo we love them so much follow them at props podcast on instagram and twitter and check out the stuff dreams are made of wherever you get your podcasts production tracks for this episode provided by our friends power man 5000 till next time trev for the boo crew saying sweet screams thanks for listening to another episode of the boo crew podcast haunt the boo crew at tales from the boo crew.com tales from the boo crew on facebook and instagram follow us on twitter at tales from the boo the boo crew is lauren and trevor shams and leone d'antonio the Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shen, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shen. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy or disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.